KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. Imagine you broke your leg. You need surgery to reset it, but it's the year 1804. How do you think that surgery is going to go? You were going to be placed on the table, and they would have those restraints to hold you down. You would also have pockets on the corners, and that would be for all the fluids that came out of you to drain, and it would drain onto the floor, which was covered in sawdust. So much like an early butcher shop, where the sawdust is all there to catch all of the blood, the same was true for here. Medicine has obviously come a long way since then. There's a whole list of game-changing treatments being developed in Philadelphia now. But the OG game-changer, the reason all those other hospitals are here in the first place, was Pennsylvania Hospital, the first chartered hospital in the nation, founded in Philly in 1751. This is The Johncast, a podcast of interesting and unexpected stories from Philadelphia. I'm Sabrina Boyd-Circa, and this week, I'm taking you on a tour of Pennsylvania Hospital. We'll find out what medicine looked like in the 18th and 19th centuries, the revolutionary developments and the gruesome stories. And we'll learn how much things have or in some cases haven't changed over the past 200 years. Back in 1750, when America was just the 13 colonies, Europe had hospitals, but we didn't yet. So what could you do if you got sick or injured? Your option was pretty much that you could hire a physician to treat you. That's Stacy Peoples, the curator and lead archivist at Pennsylvania Hospital. When she says hire a physician, she means someone who would have to come out to your house. And depending on where you lived and how many physicians there were would depend on whether that was affordable or it wasn't affordable. And then you would always have your own home remedies. People depended a lot on their communities. Families had medicine recipe books, or your neighbors would tell you how they fixed a similar problem. Until one doctor thought we needed a better way to help everyone. Pennsylvania Hospital is the idea of a man named Dr. Thomas Bond. He starts to talk to his friends about establishing a voluntary hospital here, someplace that would help to care for the sick poor in the area. Because, you know, if somebody's ill and they, they can't afford someone like Dr. Bond to come and treat them in their home. And so when he proposes the idea, everyone thinks it's wonderful until he has to ask for money. And then people are like, ooh, um, <laughs> it's interesting. Let's hold off on that for right now. And just like today, a lot of times it takes name cachet to be able to move a project forward. And in this case, it was Benjamin Franklin. So Franklin endorses the project, he puts his name behind it. And so now people are willing to put out a little bit to help finance the institution. So we are chartered May 11, 1751. So Ben Franklin and Dr. Thomas Bond started renting a building on Market Street, which was called High Street then, until they could build their own space. In 1756, the hospital's Pine Building was completed, and that's where Stacy and I are today. The historic Pine Building is actually part of the working hospital, which is one of the things that I think makes us incredibly unique and incredibly special. We don't have anything that's strictly like roped off and off limits in terms of use. There are gonna be rooms we'll go in today that I'm gonna say, oh, we also use this as a conference space and there's overflow meetings here, and, but it's primarily administrative right now. 
So we don't actually have patients inside the Pine Building, but we did up until the early 1970s. Okay, so we're gonna head up this way. All right. You can really feel the history here. Even the flowers date back hundreds of years. The wisteria that I had mentioned, um, that's gonna be all right here along the front. That's over 100 years old. Uh, the azaleas have been here probably in that mid-ish century time frame, so they're getting up in age themselves. This is fabulous, right? Like, yeah. yeah, it's beautiful. As we're walking the grounds, Stacy explains the hospital's mission. Pennsylvania Hospital provided a facility for advanced medical care like surgeries, but it was also a place where anyone could receive care, regardless of their financial situation. Unlike an individual calling a physician to their home, the hospital was able to get funding and donations to cover the costs for people who couldn't afford it on their own. We take care of the sick poor and the mentally ill here. That's been their guiding principle since day one, taking care of the sick poor and the mentally ill. And the mentally ill part was actually kind of radical at the time. They really had no idea how to cure the mentally ill. But what they understood is that mental illness had nothing to do with the supernatural. It's hard to believe now, but when this hospital was first established, people thought mental illness was supernatural, like you were being possessed. Pennsylvania Hospital was one of the first places to say, no, that's not what's happening. You were not demonically possessed. A witch did not curse you. Nobody put a hex on you. You know, in fact, you weren't even being punished by God. There had to be a medical reason. That approach drew in a lot of mental health patients, more than the hospital was prepared for at first. While people weren't being cured, they weren't necessarily leaving, but they were living for a very long time. Someone with a mental condition doesn't just go home like you would after surgery. They lived at the hospital and had ongoing care. So that by the 1770s, we actually have pretty much double the number of mentally ill patients to physically ill patients. They were taking up so many rooms that the hospital had to expand. In 1796, we add the West Wing on. They put the center building in, completed in 1804. So 1804 completion for what we, today, when we talk about the Pine Building, consider the Pine Building. Got it. All right, All right now we're gonna hope nobody locked us out. <laughs> we go inside, and there's no reception desk or waiting room. It looks more like a museum than a hospital. So the great court here, you know, everybody, I love when we bring uh, tour groups and all in because people come in and they're like, wow. <laughs> yeah. It does not look like what you think a hospital looks like. The floor is still its original Portuguese tile. There are historic paintings on the walls and a double grand staircase. It feels like stepping into Bridgerton, like a Victorian estate. But as we talked about earlier, we had actual patients in here until the early 1970s Patients in here, doctors, nurses, everybody, you know, functioning just like you would any other clinical setting. At the back of the court is a door that opens into a more modern clinical area. The doors open so doctors, nurses, and administrators can come in and out, crossing between eras at their will. 
We head up the stairs next to the library. This looks so cool. <laughs> <laughs> so I have to say, I always laugh when people come in because they either walk in and they're like, oh, it's like Beauty and the Beast library, <laughs> or it's like Hogwarts. I would be team Beauty and the Beast if you were wondering, but I can see both. There are books lining every wall and a balcony level, all encased in glass cabinets and a large wooden conference table in the middle. Across from us by the windows are a few non-literary pieces, two anatomical casts of human bodies, and something floating in a jar. I was just looking at this. That's, that whole thing nobody, is a tumor. Yes, and nobody believes, they're like, really? Really? And I'm like, yes, that is the actual tumor. Yeah, it's pretty gross. But in the way that you can't look away from, like it's drawing you in, the whole room is fascinating. These are the objects and books that our nation's first medical students studied. Today, in this room, we have over 13,000 volumes. Wow. Now, the actual breadth of this collection dates anywhere between 1483 and about 1930. Wow. Yes. The study of medicine must have changed so much from then to now, because now you have all these established ways to do things. But when we're talking about you know, 1760, people were like discovering medicine here, right? So as far as collecting these books, they're collecting people who have just figured out how to do certain things. That's exactly correct. So, you know, you're trying to understand diseases and you're trying to understand them early on without being able to run a lab. Like you can I would love for one of those physicians to come back and just see the technology, you know, robotics going in and doing brain surgery and just how amazed they would be by the progress in what really is a very short time period. So what exactly was medicine like in the 18th and 19th centuries? Unfortunately, there aren't a lot of great records. Some things are vague. There are people who come in with a sore leg, right? A mm. sore leg could literally be anything. And in the earliest records, they don't detail what the treatments were. They're more like log books. We do know some of the most common reasons people would come to the hospital. They came in with a fever. Later on, they do name specifically influenza, but in the beginning, it's just sort of like fever or intermittent fevers, you know, things like that. There are people who come in for all kinds of injuries. I mean, remember, labor was much harder, and so they have all sorts of bangs and bruises and cuts and severed parts. And so those are kind of common things, as well as the surgical. So things like tumors, broken bones, fractures, that things that need to be reset, that sort of thing. Amputations, so people coming in with gangrene legs, arms. A lot of people coming in from heat stroke, heat exhaustion, frostbite. There were some memorable cases. There was a sailor who fell off of rigging shattered almost every bone in his body. And they built this contraption that kept him like completely still so that he could heal. It's amazing. One of the biggest attractions to the hospital was their surgery. And when I say attraction, I mean people could actually come and watch. This is our surgical amphitheater. And this room was in use from 1804 through 1868. When you think about it, doctors perform surgery. Maybe it makes sense to do it in a theater. The room looks like a theater in the round, or maybe an old church or lecture hall. There are benches, 
kind of pew-style seating in a circle and up in the balcony, all surrounding a simple wooden table. What happens is you're gonna come into the room and there is gonna be a whole room full of people here. They're mostly gonna be people who are training to be physicians or physicians who are here to watch and you are gonna be placed on the table. Now the actual table would have been a little more narrow. There would be, you know, some raised sides and they would have those restraints to hold you down. You would also have pockets on the corners and that would be for all the fluids that came out of you to drain and it would drain onto the floor, which was covered in sawdust. So much like an early butcher shop, where the sawdust is all there to catch all of the blood, the same was true for here. And it was I actually- I have to laugh at you comparing <laughs> surgery to a butcher shop. Yeah, well- But it does it, make sense. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Lots of blood and gore, but, but they, the intention was the best. Now remember, this was before we had things like anesthesia or even sanitation. Doctors would wash their hands after surgery. They had coats to protect their clothes, but those coats would go unwashed for years at a time. And since anesthesia wasn't an option, they gave patients a choice of how to get semi-unconscious. They could get drunk, take some opium, or get knocked on the head with a mallet. So I read the, about the options for oh, yes. how do you make someone unconscious without anesthesia? <laughs> <laughs> well, unfortunately, they probably were not unconscious. They were most likely awake. And I can't imagine that even if you had, you know, several shots of whiskey or rum, that you weren't going to know someone was taking your leg off. These things might sound horrific to us now, but this was the top tier of surgery back then. Medical students would come to observe, but the general public could attend too. Some people would even follow certain surgeons like celebrities and come specifically to see their work. These physicians did so many surgeries that naturally, they just got really good at it. They actually, by the time of the Civil War, were known for their surgical excellence. And so we actually had 124 specialty cases that came to us because we were so well-known for our surgical excellence. So Pennsylvania Hospital was making strides in surgery and physical health care. But that was only half of their mission, the sick poor and the mentally ill. And when it came to mental illness, the hospital's approach was radical for the time in some ways. But in others, it only began a conversation that we're still having today about destigmatizing mental health. We'll hear more about that after this break. Welcome back to the JohnCast. Earlier, Stacey Peoples told us that Pennsylvania Hospital, the first chartered hospital in the nation, was founded by Dr. Thomas Bond and Ben Franklin. But there's another doctor who plays a critical role in the hospital's history, Dr. Benjamin Rush, the father of American psychiatry. Rush came on staff here in 1783. And when he comes on board, he is very interested in the mental health patients. He starts to look at them and look at ways to treat them to best improve those outcomes. We mentioned before that mental illness was treated as supernatural in those times. Dr. Rush was a major advocate for treating mental health patients as humans with a medical condition. He brought in ideas that are along the lines of occupational therapy, giving patients something to do with their time. 
allow someone to paint, allow someone to perform music. And so the idea was you could have patients working and being productive and not just sitting in a space where they're in their own heads. Rush also advocated for simple, humane treatment of these patients, like getting heat in their rooms in the winter. You and I are thinking, why in the world were they not heated in the first spot? Sure. But what happened is that the idea was at the time, the mentally were impervious to the hot or the cold. The idea that the patients weren't complaining somehow translated in the mind of the managers to, they're all right. They don't feel that, you know. And Rush was like, no, 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 just because they're not complaining, I think that their health is going to improve if we heat their rooms. The board of managers let him have his experiment, and guess what? He was right. It's those wins that move forward, and we think to ourselves, but that's so simple. But that was a leap. The way we think and talk about mental health has evolved a lot, even down to the language we use. We've said that Pennsylvania Hospital's mission was to take care of the sick, poor, and mentally ill. That's how they say it today. But initially, it was the sick, poor, and insane. Initially, saying that we were here to take care of the sick, poor, and the insane was a perfectly legitimate way to talk about individuals. Um, When you go through the old records, lunatic is probably used more often than any other term for Mm -hmm. the mentally ill. It took a long time to move away from terms like that. To be honest, we're still working on it. But it's really all been a slow evolution of the efforts that began in the 1800s. In that time period, you see a lot of effort to make mental illness less stigmatized. And when you look back at some of these older records and you see what people were being treated for, there were, of course, very serious you know, manic depressive cases, hallucinations, you know, all kinds of things. But you also have a whole category of people who were overwhelmed by life. Kids and household responsibilities and all of these things become overwhelming. And I think that that is relatable to everyone. Yeah. And so it's interesting that they begin this conversation and that we are still in the process of trying to bring that to fruition, that it is okay. We started in 1751, and Pennsylvania Hospital is still active today. They became part of Penn Medicine in 1997. And we should note here that Penn Medicine does have a business relationship with KYW News Radio. But you can see the ripple effects of the nation's first hospital all across Philadelphia. 2021 was a banner year for two University of Pennsylvania researchers. Drew Weissman was the last person in his family to get the COVID-19 vaccine, which is only funny because he and his research partner, Katie Corico, invented the mRNA technology the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines use. Researchers have found a way to remove the HIV from cells using gene editing technology. Dr. Kamel Khalili, director of the Center for Neurovirology and Gene Editing at Temple University School of Medicine, says animals were given an infusion of molecules and proteins based on CRISPR gene editing therapy, and that eliminated the virus from the body. 
Scientists at the University of Pennsylvania have developed a chewing gum that apparently kills COVID. The gum is made from protein-enhanced lettuce that traps the COVID-19 in the saliva, reducing the viral load you can spread and blocking the virus from your system. Has all this medical research come to Philly because of Pennsylvania Hospital? Or was the hospital built here because it was already an innovative city with great scientific minds like Dr. Bond and Ben Franklin? Stacy says it's hard to tell. Sort of a chicken or the egg situation. So you had really good, strong physicians here, and they had strong ties with people who supported us. And so I think they kind of went together. And then it just sort of exploded because from the hospital, other institutions start to come about. And it's great for us. I think it's great for the city and really important that that's part of our heritage. If you want to learn more about Pennsylvania Hospital or set up a tour of your own, we'll put a link to their website in our show notes. Thanks so much for listening. The JohnCast team is Tom Rickert, Brian Seltzer, Holly Stevens, Myron Kaplan, and me, Sabrina Boyd-Circa. Thanks to Stacey Peoples, along with Drs. Jody Foster, Patty Eineker, and Daniel Feinberg at Pennsylvania Hospital for contributing to this story. That's all we have for this week, but follow us on Twitter at TheJohnCast or on your favorite podcast player for more stories that can only be found in Philadelphia.